From the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU 91.1 FM and Brown College at the University of Virginia, this is Circle of Willis, human stories of the science that shapes our world. When I first started writing essays about science, I wasn't sure how they would be received. At that time, there was still a stigma against scientists writing articles for the public. It was considered a soft activity. Welcome back to Circle of Willis. I'm your host, Jim Cohn, and I'm joined once again by our producer, Sage Tangway. Hello. (laughs) Okay, this is actually our first interview that we've done since I took over as producer. This is a relatively brand new interview with... Alan Lightman. Can you tell me a little bit about Alan Lightman? Yeah, Alan Lightman is a really interesting physicist and novelist and poet who is now at MIT, started his work in physics at Harvard University. At some point, he sort of makes this incredibly pragmatic and courageous decision to say, well, you know, I think I've done a lot of the really uh, hardcore physics work that I'm going to ever do. <laughs> That's a level of existential decision making that I just can't. Yeah, I yeah that awareness for. is pretty astounding in and of itself. Yeah, and I've always enjoyed writing, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna start writing novels. The first one he comes out with is probably still his most famous. It's Einstein's Dreams. A lot of what we'll hear in this interview indicates a falsehood in the dichotomy between art and science. There's obviously a, a, a difference in terms of content, right? You know, on the one hand, he's writing about relativistic plasmas. And on the other hand, he's writing about sort of the the existential puzzle of existence, right? And those are very different content areas. But they draw from a common well of creativity. And one of the things that people, I think, don't often appreciate about the work of scientists is exercising your creativity for the purpose of imagining the way things could be. Karl Popper, philosopher of science, famously wrote that science entails boldness and conjecture and austerity and refutation. And everyone remembers the austerity and refutation part. Right. But the boldness and conjecture part sort of doesn't get a lot of conversation because how do you teach it? Where do ideas come from? What is the what is the role of creativity? Well, it's front and center in scientific work. What you see so y- uniquely and dramatically in someone like Alan Lightman is that he is exercising his creativity, whether he's working on relativistic plasmas or, you know, the puzzle of existence. He's all in every time. And I think that's there's, there's a lot to learn from that. Let's take a listen. My name is Alan Lightman, and I am a physicist and a writer. From a young age, I was interested in both science and the arts. I uh, had a homemade laboratory at home. Uh, I had I built rockets. I made my own rocket fuel. You what? I made my own rocket fuel. You did that? I did. I also built remote control devices that I could turn on the lights in any room of the house from any other room, which 
totally awed my three younger brothers. I bet uh, it awes me. But I also loved to read and loved to write. I wrote poetry at that age. I mean, it was terrible, but I enjoyed it at the time. I wrote short stories, and uh, I didn't know whether I'd be able to make a career as both a scientist and a writer, but um, fortunately I was able to do that. You started out, it seems, in the direction of science. I did. When I was in college, I somehow got wind of the fact that scientists did their best work when they were young, and I knew of a few people who had started out as scientists and later became writers like C.P. Snow. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know of any people who started out as writers and later became scientists. Yeah. So without fully understanding that chronology of the profession, I knew that I needed to get myself well-established in science first. So uh, when I was in college, I, I took courses all over the map, you know, literature, philosophy, physics. But when I finished, I went to graduate school in physics and started my career in physics, but I did not stop writing. I, for the, for the first years, I, I did my writing on the weekends and, and evenings but gradually, as I passed my peak as a physicist, which happens as a, at a very young age when you're a theoretical physicist, around my mid to late 30s, I began shifting my uh, center of gravity. And from then on, I spent more of my time as a writer than as a physicist. I mean, if you look at the... Nobel Prizes in physics, not the time that the person received the prize, but the time when they did the work right. that earned the prize, you'll find that, that, that they're very young. Yeah. And uh, the youngest is with mathematics, then physics, then chemistry, then biology in terms of age where you, <laughs> where you do your best work. Yeah, I wonder about that even in, in the other sciences sometimes. I, I know in my own case, my most enduring work sadly, was done when I was about 22. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that leaves the question, if you're uh, a scientist, what do you do with the rest of your life? Most scientists will continue in science, but start letting a lot of their research being done by graduate students. They'll yeah. start writing textbooks. They'll start serving on national committees, which is all very valuable. Yeah. But it's not, you know, getting in the ring, duking it out with Mother Nature. It's not, you know, the frontline scientific research. Truly. For me, fortunately, I had another creative interest, which was writing. And I was able to make a, a, sl a slow transition from doing frontline research in physics to writing. The similarity is that they're both creative activities. Yeah, truly. And when I was a graduate student in physics, and uh, my, I was at California Institute of Technology, or Caltech, most of the graduate students around me lived, ate, and breathed physics. And I did too during that period. 
But when I looked at, at my fellow students, I could tell that they were going to do physics for the rest of their life. I felt that I didn't have to do physics for the rest of my life, but I did have to do a creative activity for the rest of my life. <laughs> that, that the need to, to create, to express, to learn new things, to discover new things was even deeper than the particular things that I was creating or discovering. Yeah, no, I really relate to that. You know, I grew up drawing comic books and, and trying to sell them in my high school and things like that. Little zines, we called them then. And um, then initially went to art school um, and really liked it, although I found it daunting in a way that math and science was not. I sort of retreated, really, into science for a while. And then, if, as you say, it's an incredibly creative space. They don't really teach that very well, I think. I don't think we teach that very well. I think that creativity among scientists is a graded phenomenon. I think the best scientists are very creative. Um, there is a part of science which is just bookkeeping, classification, uh, which, is, which is important, taking data. Yep. Mm -hmm. But it's less creative than inventing new theories of subatomic particles or cosmology. Yeah. I mean, this is what's so interesting about Einstein's dreams. It's one of the many things that's interesting about Einstein's dreams is that you're playing with a bunch of different possibilities in a very sort of creative way, in a way that a, that a scientist, and Einstein, Einstein himself, might have been sort of throwing things against the wall to see what sticks. Yes, I, I was trying to show in a metaphorical way by the structure of the book. I was trying to echo the, the creativity of science. When I first started writing essays about science, this was in the early 1980s, and my first essays were published in Smithsonian Magazine, I wasn't sure how they would be received. <laughs> At that time, there was a, still a stigma against scientists taking some of their valuable research time and instead of doing research, writing articles for the public. It was considered a soft activity. And uh, I, I didn't know for, for sure who the audience would be. A number <coughs> of scientists wrote to me and said, I'm happy that you're writing these essays because I can use them to explain to my husband or my wife what it is that I'm doing. Uh, it was very gratifying to hear that. Scientists are not trained to be communicators. You know, you're trained to solve differential equations or do titrations in the yeah. chemistry lab. Um, <clears throat> And uh, the ability to communicate, the ability to, to find good metaphors uh, is a separate skill. Yeah. And so it's not surprising that a lot of <clears throat> scientists don't have that skill, just as a lot of songwriters don't have, aren't able to solve differential equations. Yeah, that's absolutely. Uh, but I agree that it's a, it's a very important uh, question challenge to be able to convey science 
to people who are not literate in science. Um, one of the problems that we have today with this highly polarized society that we live in is uh, there's a lot of suspicion of institutions of all kinds, um, government, uh, universities, and science is viewed by a certain segment of the population. Science is viewed as part of the elite establishment. Yes. And that's an obstacle. A hundred percent. That's absolutely correct. There are a lot of people who are suspicious of science. Or I should say, maybe not the science itself, but the, the priesthood of science. Yes. That might be a better way to yeah, say Yeah, right, yeah. Um, I think that a lot of those people are implicitly trusting in science every time they get in an airplane you know this 200 ton thing of steel is is up in the air and they are implicitly although they don't know it trusting Bernoulli's laws of aerodynamics yes yes I would like them to know I don't know how to get them to know but I would like them to know I would like them to know too <coughs> um so I, I think that, that part of getting the different groups in our polarized society to, to talk to each other and uh, conveying science as a subset of that larger problem is, is finding things that people have in common, that they share, like yeah. food or children or sports, mm -hmm. and starting from that place and then trying to work up from there and doing a lot of listening. Yeah, you've got a show coming out, right? I do. Um, it's uh, going to be on public television, premiering in early January, and it's titled Searching Our Quest for Meaning in the Age of Science. Uh, the director and producer is a man named Jeffrey Haynes Stiles, who was the original producer of the Carl Sagan Cosmos series. Oh, you're kidding. And he's done many subsequent wonderful science documentaries. And when he first talked to me about uh, making a public television series based on my books, um, I said, I'd be happy to do that <coughs> as long as it's not straight science, that I, I want to explore the philosophical and ethical and theological issues raised by science. So although there's a lot of hard science in the series, I also speak to philosophers and faith leaders and ethicists about the implications of science. Yeah, I'm dying to see this. The show Cosmos, when it came out in the early 80s, fundamentally changed my life as a young person living in a poor household in a working class family. The fact that I could access that and learn about, you know, six dimensions, watching a TV show on public television and just puzzle through it for weeks. Uh, well, that was Carl Sagan's Cosmos was a great series. And I think it's still the 
has been viewed by more people in the world, I think a billion people, more people than any other television series. I think it's interesting. Peter Medawar wrote about how the scientific paper is a lie. I don't know if you ever read that essay. It's great. I haven't read that one. I, I like him, though. So tell, tell me about that. So he says, you know, the way we structure our scientific papers is so, is so pretty and neat. I, I see. And, yes. And yes. this is complete That's nonsense. That's the extent to which it's a lie. Yeah. It doesn't show the, the path that the scientists got yeah. to. And, and it, it also hides all of those moments where you're like, yes, I, I did that. Oh, my God. And he's not sure. He's not sure. He understands the rationale for leaving that out, but he's not sure it's a good idea to do so. Well, maybe you need two versions of each published article. Yeah. You need one version that has the yes yeah. in it and another version which is just the straight facts and science. <laughs> maybe another version in iambic pentameter. Andre Magnuson talks about one of the problems in communicating science is that science works at these scales that are just not imaginable without a lot of help and a lot of thinking and maybe some training. And yet he goes through the cultures of Iceland and India, Nepal, about these sort of long uh, glacial uh, sheets and things and notes that the local cultures have these great metaphors that allow them to absorb the scale. Talk about that. This is this is you know this this is mother's milk mm-hmm. coming down. This is Odin's beard, mm-hmm. you know, and we can understand beards mm-hmm. and milk. But science also works at at everyday human scales. I mean, I can take a book and drop it to the floor, and there's a lot of science in the trajectory of that book and the forces acting on it and the velocity when it hits the floor. So while it's true that that uh, a lot of modern science works at very, very tiny scales and very enormous scales that, that are beyond our sense perception. Uh, there is a lot of science at an everyday experiential level. Truly. Yeah, it is, it is amazing that, that we human beings have been able to probe the cosmos on scales vastly larger than ourselves and also on scales vastly smaller. It's, it's pretty astonishing. To the point where it seems, it really seems fictional. It does. You know, it, it becomes like it's quantum, abstract. quantum yeah, it, abstraction. It becomes abstract. Well, an interesting note on that about human beings and where we fit in this cosmos, that in terms of powers of 10, we're almost exactly halfway in size between an atom and a star. What? That is, you would have to multiply our size by the same number of powers of 10 to get up to a star as you would have to divide our size by the same number of powers of 10 to get down to an atom. Oh my God, don't tell the numerologists. Isn't that interesting? That is fascinating. Yeah. Well, I'm going to just ruminate about that for the rest of the day. Thanks a lot. (laughs) What does that mean? I mean, there, there are things like that lurking around all over the place though, right? you know, the Fibonacci and, right. you know, the, these, these, these things that, that sort of emerge from the physical universe yeah. 
that seemed just too perfect. Well, the cosmos is a strange place <coughs> indeed. I don't think there's any magic behind any of this, but I think it's fascinating. Um, I don't believe that there are phenomena that lie outside of the laws of nature, but I do think that there are really amazing phenomena in, in our physical world, like falling in love. Falling in love. Apprehending the cosmos from looking at, at the stars. Yes. And, and I call those amazing transcendent experiences, I, I, I call them miraculous. So that's the sense in which I say I don't believe in miracles, but I do believe in the miraculous. You talk about consciousness and the difference between animate and inanimate material, which is a false distinction, and I believe in your, in your view. Everything, everything is made out of atoms and molecules. Yeah. Uh, that, that's the sense in which there's no distinction. But there's no doubt that, that uh, collections of atoms and molecules that we deem to be conscious have a special arrangement that's different than the arrangement of atoms and molecules in a rock. Right. That is quasi-miraculous in, in a sense. It is. I think we even have a term for that which I'd love to, to pick your brain on a little bit, which is the, the word emergence. There are sort of synergistic interactions among physical elements, molecules, that result in a, a dynamic, even though its constituents are made up of those, those you know, billiard balls, it's not really reducible to them. Yes. And that's the way that I try to understand how it is that consciousness can arise from the hundred billion neurons in our brain, each connected to a thousand other neurons, that you can't understand the higher functions of the brain simply by looking at individual neurons. Yeah. You, you can't predict the amazing sensation of consciousness and all the other things that our brains are capable of. Um, there's a, there's a, a special group of fireflies, which uh, if you put a bunch of these fireflies uh, out in a field on a summer night, uh, initially they start blinking at random, like lights on a Christmas tree. But after a minute or so, <coughs> they start synchronizing their flashing. So they all flash off on, and they flash off together, and they flash on. They, they come into synchrony, and you, you can't possibly understand or predict that by looking at a single firefly. Mm. That's an example of emergent phenomenon. Yeah. It, it's so complicated that you can't write an equation exactly that, that, that shows that and predicts that. And that represents this magical, miraculous leap from a bunch of things interacting to a property that didn't exist before. For me, emergence occupies this, this sort of middle space between you know dropping the book on the floor and experiencing the oneness of the cosmos and having a spiritual moment. 
it, it could be that in the future that we will have a better understanding of emergent phenomena and, and, and simple systems to be able to make predictions. I mean, there are many things in science where 100 years ago or 200 years ago we thought that something wasn't possible or we didn't understand it at all. And then later on we, we, we understood it. So it could be that, that for some fairly simple systems we will be able to write the equation at some point in the future that, that predicts this amazing collective phenomena. Yeah, I, 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 I kind of hope so, and I'm kind of wary of it. Right, yeah. I like being out, you know, on the hood of my car in Yakima Valley, staring up at the cosmos and being able to see the stars and the planets so clearly that they're not abstractions. That makes me feel special. I think that, that all life and the universe, and especially intelligent life, is extremely rare. Um, if you make an estimate of how much of all the material in the universe is in living form, and you, you extrapolate from the biosphere of the Earth, you come out with a number that is one billionth of one billionth. That's 10 to the minus 18. And to put that into more visible graphic terms, that's like one grain of sand on the Gobi Desert. So that means that we living creatures, we are special, we are rare, we're the only means by which the universe can observe itself. Yeah. We're, we're the, the accountants and the spectators and the observers and the recorders of this strange place that we find ourselves in. Made all the more amazing to me the phrasing that you use, you know, can observe itself because one of the, the things that blew my mind way back watching Carl Sagan in 1980 or so in Cosmos was learning that I was, in his word, star stuff. That the, 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 the atoms and molecules that make up my body were, were and can only have been manufactured in stars where the pressures and heat and such were sufficient to create them. So that's what you get if you go backwards in time, that we all started in stars. If you go forward in time, and if you could label each one of the atoms in your body with your social security number, <laughs> and after you die, you could follow those atoms as you disassembled, as your atoms mixed with soil and ocean and air, and eventually some of your atoms will become parts of other people in the future. Those atoms will not know that they were once yours, but they will have been yours, and your atoms will become parts of other people. So, so either going backwards in time to when we were all part of the stars, or going forwards in time when our atoms will eventually become a part of other people hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of years from now is, is kind of a connection 
between all of us. Oh yeah, I love that. Science, man. It, it just, this has absolutely, fundamentally changed my view of myself and my social environment. Love, connection, everything is patterns moving through each other, sharing, preserving, dissembling, reassembling. Yeah. You don't need magic. You don't need astrology. You don't need tarot cards. Science has it all in itself. Yeah. Yeah. And more so because you can't, you really can't make this stuff up. It's too amazing to just make up. <laughs> yeah. Alan Lightman, thank you so much for this conversation. It's very generous of you. And um, I could do it for another 12 hours at least easily, but I know that you've got other appointments. Thank you, Jim. Alan Lightman's new docu-series, Searching, Our Quest for Meaning in the Age of Science, will debut on January 7th on public television stations or streaming online at pbs.org. Next episode, we are going to be speaking with you. Me? Jim Cohn. Holy crap. I won't ask you to tell me anything about next episode's guest because you'll be telling us it all in our final episode of this season of Circle of Willis. All right. Folks, the music of Circle of Willis is written and performed by Tom Stoffer and his band, The New Drakes. For more information on how to purchase their music, visit our website, circleofwillispodcast.com. You can also find all of our old episodes on the website. If you haven't already, subscribe to Circle of Willis wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram and Twitter for more updates. Circle of Willis, human stories of the science that shapes our world.